Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's Bible reading is from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8 to 22, up on the screen, uh, or in your pew Bibles on page 982. Uh, verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason and the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nathan. Please keep those Bibles open. You're going to need them, clearly, as we go through such a passage as this. And uh, you'll find an outline there in your bulletins you can make use of. And if you're under 18 and bring that to me afterwards, yeah, i got chocolate. We'll see if you get any. Yeah. All right. That's not a threat. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Our Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks and you speak marvellous things, wonderful things, things that are well, so often beyond our comprehension. Well, would you make yourself clear to us tonight? Would you uh, help us to see, to understand, to delight in your word and what you are showing us? Uh, your word is relevant to us, even now, and so we would ask you to help us to comprehend and understand and to delight. We have seen that you are good. 
Lord, would you show that again tonight as we consider this passage and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story goes that after his victory over Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington sent the message back to England that he had won. Fast horse, then fast ship back across the channel to tell every all the nervously waiting English the outcome. So the ship docks down there and at the bottom of the coast and starts sending via signal flags the message up to London, relayed word by word from the coast on top of all the various cathedrals. And it, word by word it began like this, Wellington defeated and then a fog rolled in. And that was it. Wellington defeated. And that's all the citizens knew. That's all they thought the message was. They thought that Napoleon had won and that you know, gloom now covered the city and they started to begin to think, you know, do we need to prepare for invasion? And then after a few hours the fog lifted and they saw the rest of the message. Wellington defeated the enemy. And a sigh of relief was enormous and there's dancing in the streets because, well, now they've got double reason for excitement, especially after that gloomy moment where everything was fogged over and unclear. And now their conduct matched the full reality of their... Well, their conduct now matched the full story of their reality. Not the half story, not the half information. They now knew how to act in line with what was going on. Now, like them, we too... Well, we can fall into deep gloom about our circumstances very easy, especially when we've got a half story. And the worst gloom of all is when we don't have the whole story about Jesus and what he means for us. Jesus, having come in the flesh, having died on the cross, having risen from the dead, now ascended on high. Half the story is not the full story. What does it mean for us? It changes how we live. And without the whole story, how can our conduct rightly match our reality. And I reckon Peter knew this more than most. He knew what this gloom must feel like. On that night before Jesus died, Peter denied Christ three times publicly with Jesus nearby. And Jesus then turned and looked at Peter. And their eyes meet. Ouch. And gloom covered Peter's heart like a London fog, obscuring the message of hope that was there for him in the face of Christ. Because only later did Peter understand that Jesus was facing judgment for him. And the look that Jesus gave him was not all it seemed. Well, so too this can happen for us. And right here in the middle of this long discussion we've been working through on Peter about persecution and living under persecution, Peter now gives us great comfort to revere Christ as Lord and not lose hope, that we don't need to lose hope. Like a wisp, a clear wisp of wind clearing away the fog for just a moment, we also have here the signs of our Saviour's victory and the victory that is ours because of him in this passage. So that's what we're going to try and do tonight is to allow God's word to clear away the fog in our hearts that we might draw great strength from this passage before us. Because when we do, we find that right conduct is consistent with a bunch of different things. That right conduct is consistent with clear instruction. 
It's consistent with God's blessing. Right conduct is consistent with witnessing opportunities and it is consistent, most wonderfully of all, with victory in Christ. So let's consider that first one straight up. Right conduct is consistent with clear instructions and we need that, don't we? And it's only possible when, again, we remember not to just zero in on the words where we have them, but this is part of a longer work that Peter has written for us and what we had before us tonight flows out of those all-important instructions back a page in your Bibles. Flip back one page and you're going to find there chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And this is where the discussion starts. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And as we remember this clear instruction of the context, we find, of course, that well, Peter's talking here to Christians, specifically, who are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, Christians who, like us, living in the world now before Christ returns, and therefore we're here as foreigners and exiles, different to everyone else. And not just different in what we believe under the surface, but counterculturally different in what belief looks like as we seek to live out our faith in comparison to those who are watching on who don't yet know God. Now Peter's already addressed this for us in a number of very specific contexts, specific settings that we find ourselves. So under government, we thought we thought about that earlier, didn't we, a couple of weeks back, and likewise in the workplace. And last week, the difference for husbands and wives in marriage. But now from verse 8 of chapter 3, well, Peter now address, addresses us as a collected group of Christians, all together as one body. Everyone together at this point. And so, this bit's addressed to all of us, very clearly. And we realise that we find that right conduct in the church, right conduct in the church is consistent with God's blessing. God's blessing, verses 8 to 12. And I love how this starts. It's so easily said, yet so difficult to do. So speaking to all Christians together now, Peter says these words, Finally, all of you, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be amongst a people who live like that towards one another. What a blessing to be in those kind of relationships consistently. What an amazing witness that would be to the young amongst us as they see the grown-ups living like this toward one another. What an amazing witness it would be to the wider population around us who don't yet know God if they could see the difference of Christians that we look like this when we're together. That would be such good things for us, for the young, for others. But Peter doesn't approach any of these things in this way. It's not the motivation that Peter supplies. No, look at what it says there, verse 9. Why do this? Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. We're called to conduct ourselves this way because of the blessing that we will inherit. But be careful here. 
It's not a new blessing. It's not an offer of something more. No, no, this is that same blessed inheritance that we read about way back in chapter 1, verse 4. Go back a page. It's right back there at the start. Peter started with this blessing, this inheritance of our salvation that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us until Christ's return. And so he's now telling us that right conduct in the church toward one another is consistent with being heirs of that inheritance. That our future blessing will and should affect our present conduct. And Peter's proof of this is that lengthy quote that he gives us here from Psalm 34 that was written by King David. King David, writing way back when, Old Testament, Psalm 34, speaking about our future, he says this, Whoever would live life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. King David learned this, he understood this, and he sought to live it out. And we go, yeah, sure, okay, well, here's one of those blokes who understood this and he got his inheritance. But you know what? He wrote this before he got his inheritance. He wrote this psalm a long time before he became king. Check it out, you'll find that Psalm 34 was written in David's London fog years, when nothing was clear. Everything was difficult. Suffering persecution on every side, enemies on every side. His own bed was not safe to live. His own nation wasn't safe to be. He'd fled to one of the enemy nations when he writes this. In those long, hard years before he received his inheritance of the kingship. And in that fog, David believed God's promise. That he would receive it in the future that God would be faithful to his promise. And so David lived in accord with that future in the present. He wrote Psalm 34 after surviving yet another narrow escape because of God's blessing on his right conduct. Uh, right, not because it was necessarily good conduct, but right because he lived with his future blessing in mind and did not give up hope. And he attributes the glory of his escape in this situation to God whose eyes were on him, to God whose ears were attentive to his prayer, doing him good, even through the difficulty, preserving and shielding David until the time that his inheritance would come. And this is the message Peter's giving us. That right conduct now is consistent with receiving God's blessing on the last day. That's guaranteed. We're going to receive it. So live in the light of that now. Right conduct toward one another now is consistent with that calling to inherit this blessing. Even now during our troubles, God's eyes are on us. His ears are attentive to our prayers. Jesus himself, remember, said, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And his face is against those who do evil. And in this, we can take heart. Even in the midst of the fog of the difficulties we have, where only half the story played out, no, we can see and know and be sure that right conduct is consistent with God's blessing that is yet to come.
that's good. And that's helpful to know that something's going to happen later. But what about now? <laughs> well, that's what Peter now gives us here in verses 13 to 16. That as foreigners and exiles, right conduct now, likewise, is consistent with something. It's consistent with witnessing opportunities. Isn't that great? The opportunity to share our faith with other people who don't yet know about Jesus. Christian conduct under persecution will lead people to ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. And that's great news, isn't it? It's hard to get into a conversation about Jesus. It's always quite tricky to do so. How do you start? Where's it going? How am I going to do this? Well, fantastic news. Here's how it happens. A little bit of persecution and you get a conversation. Yes. And yet we fear, don't we? Which do we fear more? Being persecuted because of Jesus or being persecuted because of speaking about Jesus? Well, Peter combines them here and now we've got the double problem. And so we fear and we struggle. And our fear goes about as high as it can go. And remember that Peter struggled with this too and he failed in this also. His fear of harm Oh, he was silent on that night when he should have spoken. And he knew it. He knew the encouragement he needed. He knew the extension of grace that he needed. And that's what he supplies for us here in this passage also. And so he writes verses 13 to 15. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right... You are blessed. Oh, that's good, isn't it? That our God sees, our God knows, and he does not fail to reward. As Jesus famously said and declared with Peter there in his hearing, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Peter heard that. He knew that. He's now lived that as he writes for us. And yet it's not to Jesus in Matthew 5 that he quotes, is it? Instead, Peter here reaches deep back into the Old Testament, into Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and to chapter 8 in the Old Testament. And it's not for the first time that Peter has gone to Isaiah for help and to help us and to instruct us in these days. Why? Well, because like David, God personally encouraged Isaiah. God personally encouraged Isaiah when he lived in situations like we live in amongst the people who despise him for his witness to God. And so Peter quotes here Isaiah 8 verses 12 through 14. That's where this comes from. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And you and I know we've been here as we're working through Peter that back in chapter 2, he told us there that 
Jesus is this stone that causes people to stumble, the rock that makes them fall. Both houses of Israel stumbled and fell upon him. People still do today. He is that cornerstone. He is the one and the only one to dread. He, Jesus, is the only one to fear. And that's good news for us Christians, isn't it? Oh, that's good news. Because we know him who loves us as our personal saviour. And that he is our sanctuary. The only safe place for us. Do we fear? We don't need to fear him who's died for us, do we? And that's why Peter tells the churches here in verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Respect him, honour him, look to him. Your persecutors who are causing you trouble, they're not in charge. Christ is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the one who will bring judgment on the nations. He is the one who is ruling on high. He is the king of pleasure and pain, of life and death, of heaven and hell. And he is the one who is calling his people to have right contact. Conduct befitting our inheritance with him. And when we live consistent with the right fear of the Lord, well, it doesn't just lead to wisdom, it leads also to well, opportunities for helping unbelieving friends and family be saved from the clutches of hell. And that's good, isn't it? That's what we pray for them constantly. Those people we know and love who don't know Jesus yet, we want to see them saved. Well, our right conduct under persecution leads to questions that are the easiest questions in the world for us Christians to answer. The kind of question that is the easiest to answer, giving a reason for the hope that we have. That's easy, isn't it? Because we all have a hope in Jesus. Easiest question to answer. And it happens because the Holy Spirit uses our good conduct in these settings to prick the conscience of unbelievers that they notice our conduct and then ask why did you let that happen now they might not do it in the moment they might do it weeks later but they will have noticed and why did you let that happen and 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 how can you suffer like that and still have hope that would have destroyed me how do you have hope in that kind of difficulty and right there is our chance to give them the answer the reason for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness to do it with respect, as Peter says here in verse 15, keeping a clear conscience before God in how we do it. Kindly, we can answer, oh, I have hope because of my Lord Jesus. I have hope because of Jesus. I'm different because of him, because my hope is in him. My future before death and my future beyond death is secure in him. That's why I have hope. I have hope because of Jesus. Now that, that may indeed lead to a person giving their life to Christ like you have. It also might not. It might lead to more suffering also. Perhaps not from that person, but certainly from someone else. And we need to remember that. Because Jesus too suffered for his witness. Peter suffered for his witness. All the apostles suffered for them 
giving the reason for the hope that they have. And it's more than likely that we too will suffer for our witness even while bringing life to others. And, and while it's hard to take, and it is, we need not be discouraged by it because our right conduct is consistent with victory in Christ, with victory in him. So right, for it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He suffered just like we suffer. Rather, we suffer just like he suffered. But his suffering was productive in a way that ours could never be, though indeed still it sometimes does help unrighteous come to God. And that's where we're going. For all who revere Christ as Lord, he will bring us to God. That's why we don't need to fear. That even when suffering for doing good, it's not a dreadful outcome. And so even when we suffer for doing good, even, even in a moment of weakness when we don't manage to do it well, like with Peter, or for a season of weakness where we, we commit evil instead of good, we still have nothing to fear because Christ died for sins. The righteous for who? What does it say? For who? For the unrighteous. And who's that? That's us! He died for us. That's why we're safe with him. And he did it to bring us to God. It's the unrighteous he saved, which means his death is sufficient for all our past failures, our present failures, our future. Unrighteous conduct is sufficient for all of that. Christians, we are safe with Jesus in the flesh and also in the spirit. Nothing can snatch us from the clutch of his hand, not even our own foolishness and failure. He will bring us to God. And nothing can hinder Jesus, not in the physical world or in the spiritual world, for he is victorious over them both. And that's what gets Peter all excited as he writes here. And in fact, it's that glorious certainty of Christ's victory that now consumes Peter's focus for the rest of these verses, 18 through 22, as he kind of just burts out this whole pile of stuff that we go, oh my goodness, what do I do with that? Verses 18 to 22, he's just riffing on about how excited he is that Christ is victorious. So all this information about body and spirit and preaching to imprisoned spirits and knowing baptism that saves us through the resurrection of Christ, all that's written specifically to give us confidence in our victory in Christ, to feed our assurance and to anchor our hope in the resurrection of Jesus because that is the only sure and certain hope because his resurrection has already happened. Hallelujah! We have nothing that can unseat us. Now, sure, Peter writes here with a depth that challenges us, yet also with a power and direction that thrills us and feeds our confidence in Christ. 
Uh, if you're excited by what's here and want to go digging deep into it, or you're perplexed what's going on in this next section and want to go digging deep into it, well, come and explore it with me later tonight. I invite you all to come back at 8.30 this evening. Or come on Zoom, the link is in the e-news, and we'll go deep diving into these verses and look at these things and see if we can explore its intricacies in more detail. But I'm going to bench that for then because we don't need it to appreciate what's here. See, we don't need the depth, or we don't need to have understanding of all the depth to benefit from the wonders that are present for us any more than we need the understanding of a marine biologist to enjoy the ocean. Any marine biologists here? Okay, does, does anyone enjoy the ocean? Okay, all right, well, a whole bunch of us. All right, see, see, we can enjoy it without needing to know everything about it, everything that's under the surface, okay? So, uh, if you want to come diving with me later, let's do that. But let's just see what we can appreciate here straight up. Because, in fact, like sitting in a boat drifting on the surface, we too, like Peter, can draw great delight from the current of Peter's words here. Because where does he take us? Well, he takes us all the way to victory in Christ, all the way to viewing Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension to God's right hand on high with all angels and authorities and powers and dominions in submission to him. That Christ did this at all blows our minds. And it should. But do this, he did. And because Jesus did rise, those who are in him are safe with him. He will bring us to God. And nothing can stop him from doing so. Nothing in the physical world that harms us now or in the spiritual world that we might fear. There is no prison he cannot reach, no frightened soul he cannot save. His victory is our victory. For there will come a time when we, like Jesus, will no longer need to submit ourselves to any kind of tyranny. And for now, while we wait, and we do need to do that, well, our right conduct matters intensely because it displays a clear conscience toward God that rests in the ark of Christ, no matter how bad the fog gets that we're experiencing. And fogs get bad, don't they, in our lives? London fogs are bad. But I reckon the fog in the time of the ark would have been worse for poor old Moa. All that rain, it must have been a million times worse kind of fog when you think about it. And yet Noah's conduct was right because it matched God's salvation. Even in that dreadful fog, as the waters of the earth joined the waters from the sky and obliterated, Noah's conduct was right because it matched the salvation God was supplying now we've seen some torrential rain and flooding in Australia this past year and quips about building arcs abound and floods of biblical proportions. We're hearing about it constantly in the news but we really have seen nothing like 40 days and nights of rain where even the mountains are covered. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. At the same time, it's awful and it's hard and suffering well, it, dis it doesn't just distract us, it fogs our view. And for well, old Noah in the ark, 
Well, it was certainly fog for him. He didn't know where he was going. Remember, there's no windows in that thing. And there was no rudder and no engine. So, yeah, he's just there. He never knew how, where he was going or for how long the journey would take. But he did know that nothing would be left outside the ark alive that had formerly been there when he first climbed in. He also knew that he could trust God for the destination and that God would safely get him there. And his conduct needed to match this saving reality, especially as every other living creature that moved on the ground or in the sky and flew was being obliterated outside, all drowned except those in the ark with Noah. Yes, all those animals, but just eight people, eight people of all people were saved at that time. And Peter takes us here. In fact, he'll ta- he, Peter loves Noah. He goes right into Noah again in, in his second letter. Because it's a really important example for us to understand what's going on for us in our salvation. See, when we think about Noah and the ark, we usually think that it was the ark that saved them. But that's not true. They were saved by both the water and the ark. They were saved by both the water and the ark. And both of these things were supplied by who? Anyone know? God, oh gee, hoping. God, yeah, God supplied them both. The ark protected its occupants from God's judgment that washed clean the sins of the earth and provided a brand new beginning. Without the flood, there was no new beginning. The ark without the water is foolish. It's just a strange-shaped barn sitting on a dry ground with no windows. And the water without the ark? Oh, that's just utter despair and no hope to be found. But bring them together... And not only is salvation possible, but also a new beginning after the flood. And in this way, what Peter's pointing out to us here is the waters of the flood were a sign pointing forward to the great act of salvation that you and I know in Christ. It's pointing forward to the water of baptism that now saves us also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Clear, a clear conscience because it's been spiritually cleansed by the judgment that fell on the ark, but not on those inside the ark. Well, friends, that means we need an ark. And that ark has been supplied for us by God. Not a great big barn with no windows. The ark is Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, it's the ark of Christ. The ark that is Christ Jesus. So just as those in the ark were saved through the judgment of the water, so those in Christ are saved through God's judgment for sin. The judgment fell on Christ. The righteous for the unrighteous who were huddling inside, just as Noah and the eight huddled inside as the judgment fell outside. And he safely carries those in him all the way to God, all the way to that resurrection life in him. Christians, we are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's how we're saved. Saved by him who has gone into heaven and who is at God's right hand with everything in submission to him. His victory is our victory. And that's why we get baptised in his name. Because we want to identify ourselves with him and the salvation that he is supplying. And that's why we want to conduct ourselves consistent with being in him. As foreigners and exiles here, different to those around us, and our conduct therefore rightly matching those, well, matching our status as rescued passengers in the good ship Jesus, the Ark of Christ. That's why we get our ticket and climb aboard, because it's the only safe place from God's judgment. And friends, it's because of Jesus, therefore, that we too can dance for joy. We can dance for joy like those on the streets of London when they got the full story. But we can dance harder, can't we? For unlike our English friends under Wellington, well, that salvation was only temporary, wasn't it? Oh, there were more enemies to come. But ours, ours is established for eternity because our Saviour sits at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Praise God for Jesus. Praise be to God for Jesus, our victor. In him we are safe. That's why we praise God for Jesus. Who do we praise him for? Jesus. Jesus. We praise him for Jesus. Where is our hope? It's in Jesus. Will you say it with me? Praise be to God for Jesus. Oh, gee. Listen, are we pleased about it? Yes. I'm pleased about my salvation. Let's, let's, let's try and say like we actually are pleased about the fact that God's given us a saviour. Together, praise be to God for Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. We have a saviour. He is our hope. And that's why we can declare that hope to anyone who asks to give us the reason for our hope. We say praise be to God for Jesus, to everyone who lives in the fog of uncertainty. And we invite them to come to Jesus too. Come and join the good ship Jesus. Come to him. Come out of the fog. Come into the light. Come and believe the good news of Jesus. Let him bring you all the way to God. Praise be to God for Jesus. Amen.